break between uh, Romans. Um, we split it up with our spiritual growth campaign, and then we did our Passion Week series. We're now getting back into Romans, and we're picking up at a great place. It's the second half of Romans. And what an, an amazing place to begin right after Easter, right after Resurrection Sunday, speaking about the new life in Christ. Uh, one commentator, Douglas Moo, I think uh, put it right in his commentary when he said that Romans chapter 8 is a comprehensive portrayal of what it means to be a Christian. So would you like to know exactly what it means to be a Christian? Do you want to get your arms around that more? This is exactly what you need. And that's what he talks about. That's what we're going to see in the scripture in the first in, in the next two weeks. Then we'll talk about in that the ability to kill sin through the Holy Spirit. And then we'll talk about the future glory awaiting for us in, in the heavens. And we'll talk about your security in God's love and his plan since the foundation of the world. This is a comprehensive, beautiful, sweeping picture of what it means to be a Christian. Right now, we're going to focus on verses 1 through 4, which sets the theological groundwork for your new life in Christ. All right, so we're going to deal with the grounding for your new life in Christ. So let's look at uh, verses 1 through 4 in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This passage that I just read to you is about how God accomplished through Christ what he intended to accomplish when he made humanity. This is about how God achieved through Christ what he originally intended to achieve when he created humanity in the first place. So he created humans, Adam and Eve, in his own image. That means that they had the innate capacity to spread out his character into the world. Did they do this? No, it seems from the very beginning they chose autonomy over God's standards and his will. So then years later, God elects a people. He elects a people from a man named Abraham. And he gives those people a law. And that law reflects his heart. And it shows the people how to follow him and serve God. It shows them the world that God wants and originally intended. So do not lie. 
Don't cheat your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be holy, for I am holy. That didn't work either, because the people transgressed the law, and God punished them, sending them into exile. So here we have the final and decisive plan of God in Jesus Christ, and that is to open up a sphere in which one can enter by faith. And when one does enter this sphere, they are cleansed from sin. And then rather than giving just us just simply a law, God gives us his spirit. And this passage, therefore, is about God's plan for creating a people after his own heart. It is his plan to create a reconstituted, redeemed, and restored humanity in Jesus Christ through the Spirit. Now, one of, uh, that's, the, that's theology from above. All right? Now, I want to take this, looking at it from below, though. So, I want to look up, as it were, to the heavens from our angles, and then we'll put it together. So, from our angle... There's three points I want to get across to you today. It's number one, that we are free from sin's penalty. And if you've heard me preach for any amount of time, or Patrick preach for any amount of time, you know what's coming up next. Because you're not just freed from sin's penalty, but you're freed from sin's power. You're freed from the penalty and power of sin. And then, on top of that, you're not just free from sin's power, as if it's just been neutralized, and God just says, all right, now go ahead and, and do better. But rather than that, he gives you the Spirit, his Spirit, and etches the law, his, his will, onto your hearts through the Holy Spirit, so that you can live a life that is pleasing to God, and you can glorify him thereby. That's where we're going. So, number one, we're free from sin's penalty. Look at verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now. That's kind of odd because Paul kind of makes a break all of a sudden. So, what I think he's finally done is in chapter 5, he's, talk, he's talked about how the new Adam has come. And through faith, we can leave the old Adam's spiritual lineage, follow me, and we can be connected to the new Adam's spiritual lineage through faith, which unites us to him. And it is through that spiritual lineage now that we are reconciled to God, that we are chapter 6, that we have died and raised with this new Adam to walk in the newness of life. The rest of chapter 6 going into chapter 7, and that you are free from the law, and this does what the law could not do, ever. Having said all of that now, the new age in Christ has dawned. There is therefore now, this speaks of God's 
decisive action in Christ which has released us from the dominating influence of sin. So in verse 24 and 25, Paul, adopting the position of the Jew who wants to be sanctified by the law without the Spirit, says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the basis for there is therefore now. Condemnation. What is condemnation? The, word, the Greek word is katakrima, and it means it's only used two other times in the Bible, both in Romans and both in, the, in connection to Adam's sin. Turn with me to chapter 5, just briefly. Chapter 5, verse 16. Paul is talking about how the new Adam, Jesus, is better than the old Adam because of what flows through and from him and his work. So verse 16, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, speaking about Adam, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Katakrima, it brought condemnation to you. But the free gift following many trespasses Trespasses. Trespasses brought justification. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Alright, so this that word condemnation means that you are no longer under the effects of Adam's fall. You're no longer, let me rephrase this, you're no longer under the curse of Adam's fall. There is no condemnation. Whatever resulted from Adam spiritually, that's being undone through Christ. So there's no condemnation. All right? You can go out and preach that. Now, who is that, though, true for? So there is therefore now, new age, no condemnation, new state of existence. Who is that true for? For everyone? Just everyone in the world, no condemnation? No. There is therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What guarantees no condemnation? is not the law, but one's location. Spiritual location. You must be in Christ Jesus. We spoke about union with Christ, but don't forget your union with Christ doesn't mean just says, all right, you believe in Jesus, so I'm just going to say that you go to heaven when you die. It's so much richer than that. Your union with Christ means that he is in you. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Your union with Christ means that you have died and raised with him. We were raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Romans chapter 6. Should we sin so that grace should abound? By no means. 
Do you not know that when you were baptized, you were buried with him by baptism into his death? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, you might walk in the newness of life. You died and raised with him. So there's an in, that means Christ is in you. That's part of your union. There's a with, that means you've gone with Christ. That's part of your union. And there's an in. You're in Christ. That's part of your union as well. So you're in, with, and he's in you. So Christ... Christ. Christ is the sphere in which the condemnation from God does not abide on people. All right? Now, you know, like, submarines can go down really deep in the water. And if you go down that deep, as deep as a really low-dive submarine goes, you'll be crushed by the pressure of water. Did you know that? If you get down deep enough, you'll, be, you'll just be crushed because of the water pressure. So where do you need to be in order to not be crushed by the water pressure? You need to be in the submarine. And if you're in the submarine, you'll be able to breathe, you'll have life, so that no matter what's around you, it can't get to you if you're in this location. That's Christ. And that pressure is the pressure of sin and death in all of its effects. As the Proverbs say, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Now, that's true. Amen? So are we on the same page? You good? That's the theological grounding. No condemnation based on the work of Christ. Here's your problem. You have a psychological experience which doesn't correspond to that truth very often in your life. There are existential issues because you're still in the flesh. So there are people, and there are times when your heart is going to give you an existential struggle that will not free you from past sins. Existential means... It means in your experience, in your psychological experience, in your spiritual experience, your, your heart will not free you, will not allow you to be free from past sins. You'll feel condemned. Or even something you've done recently, or even the way you feel. The heart is very tricky. It's deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17.9. So it's tricky. It's subtle. Now, I'm not going to unpack all the ways that this happens, but I just want you to know that it happens. All right? The heart would condemn you. It, it, would, it would tell you things about you that are no longer true of you if you're in Christ. And so you will have a guilty conscience sometime. You'll, you'll walk around with a guilty conscience. And even when you pray, you'll feel like you're a chump sometimes because you're not, you're not praying righteously enough or I'm not coming to God pure enough somehow. And, I, and sometimes I feel chump-like going to Christ, going to God in prayer. Like I'm not being real with Him. Like I, I still have some guilt with, with Him or something. So your heart will condemn you. 
But the truth of the matter is that God is greater than your heart. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So when your heart condemns you, God is greater than that condemnation. We just sang, his mercy is more. Alright? So whatever existential, psychological, spiritual experiences you may have as a Christian, God is greater than your heart. So if you constantly feel guilty in your conscience and feel like, listen, you have failed, you're a rotten sinner, and so am I. But if you constantly feel the condemnation of that sin, like that hasn't, like there's there's parts or bits or there's a, a fog or a gas that of of condemnation in you somehow. You you are your problem is you're approaching God based on your feelings instead of based on your faith and His promises. There is no condemnation. So when you pray, pray within the forgiveness that Christ offers you. Pray within that forgiveness. Don't pray outside of Christ. You come to Christ, you come to the Lord in the name of the Son, within the sphere where there is no condemnation. Within the new age where you are a son through the Spirit. And where God wants the best for you and loves you, and does not chasten you, he might discipline you so that you could be released further from something, but he will not condemn you. So when your heart does that, God is greater than your heart. So, here's conclusion to verse 1. You are not condemned in Christ Jesus. Amen? Alright, do you believe that? All right, so when you get those experiences, approach God by faith, not feeling. Your feelings will try to trick you. The faith is trusting what God said, trusting in his provision, and then approaching him on the basis of that, regardless of how I feel that day. C.S. Lewis, Patrick and I were just talking about this before, in uh, the Screwtape Letters, where basically the screw tape letters is about a demon trying to get a Christian to backslide. And the chief demon says to this protege demon who's working on this guy, he said, what you want to do is get people to feel as if their relationship with God is predicated on their feelings. In reality, they might just be sick. They might just be tired. But what your job is to do is to get them to think that that feeling is true about their relationship with Christ. Don't fall for that. Romans 8 is here, so you will not fall for that. God is greater than your heart, or greater than any demon. Alright. So you're freed from sin's penalty. Well, thank God! Does that mean that I could just that I can go ahead and kind of live the life I wanted to, after all. No, because 
verse 1 does not exist without verse 2. In fact, there's a connecting word for. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law here, Paul is using the word law metaphorically to refer to that principle of strength, that power, that power of sin and death over against that power of the spirit of life. So, look with me in chapter 7, verse 21. Paul talks about this power of sin and death that's after you. He says, so I find it, and don't forget, this is the Jew, Jewish experience without the Holy Spirit. Paul says, so I find it to be a law, a principle, almost a, a, a principle of strength, that when I want to do evil, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my mind, the Jewish person might say, at my inner being, but I see another law in my members, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in me. So that's the problem. There's a power. There's an agency. There's a law. There's a principle of strength and spiritual vigor that is against you, even though you intend to do what is right. The law of sin and death is a power. And we, we know this in this church, right? That sin is not just something you do. It's a power. Gen, uh, Genesis 4-7. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you. But you must rule over it. The problem is you can't rule over it. Because the power is too great. The power of sin is too great. And that was true until this new age. Until the law of the spirit of life set us free from that law of sin and death. So, the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, which you receive, every Christian has the Holy Spirit. That's what's called being regenerate. So when you receive Christ, Lord and Savior, repent and believe, God sends his spirit into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. So it is the Spirit, not the Old Testament law, that is the instrument for change in a person's life. So the freight of this is you're free in Christ, but what is your freedom? You are free to not sin. That's your freedom. You're free to not sin. I want to go back one more time to Romans 7, verse 18. Who, who is, remember, we talked about this months ago, but listen to the experience of the Roman 7 man. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I don't have the ability. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do... What I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. 
So it's a law that when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. I see a law waging against the members of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin and death. Wretched man that I am. All right. Listen very closely. That's not you. Understand? That is not you. There are too many Christians that revel in chapter 7. This is not you. This is the Jewish person looking at the law and trying to follow God without the Holy Spirit. That's who this is. And we talked about this a few months ago in Romans chapter 7. You might say, well, look at the rest of chapter, or verse 25. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What Paul is saying is, if left to my own, when left to my own devices, this is the reality. And really, in the Greek, it's a genitive um, verb here. So he says, so the, here's the sense. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. Oh, so then I, by myself, serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So if left to him, his own devices... If by himself, he'll want to serve the law of God, but he'll actually serve the law of sin. You've been set free from that crisis of experience. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, I'm going to zoom out. And, and now, now we're zooming out. We're, we're going up in the sky right now, okay? And we're looking at redemptive history from a bird's eye view. Because now Paul is going to put what he just said into the framework of redemptive, his redemptive purposes, his plan of salvation. So you've been released from the penalty of sin. You've been released from the power of sin. Here's how that worked out in Romans 8, 3, and 4. For God has done what the law could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. What can a law do? For God has done what the law could not do. What can a law do? A law can tell you what sin is. And then condemn you for doing it, right? But a law cannot forgive you of that sin. And a law cannot release you from the power of that sin. But God, in Christ Jesus, has done both of those things. God has done what the law could not do. In Christ Jesus, God has accomplished the forgiveness of your sin and also the release from sin. So, in, in verse 3, God has done what the law could not do. How did he do that? By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in four sins. So in the likeness of flesh, God came, or Christ came. He sent his own son 
to take on a human sinful condition without really participating in human sinfulness, right? So he came in the likeness of humanity and for sin. That means as a sin offering. He came as a sin offering, a sacrifice for sin. And third, this condemned sin in the flesh. So in Christ's humanity, God was able to do away with your sin by sending his son who absorbed who absorbed your sin and took it into the grave with him and destroyed it. So get that? Christ took your sin, took it in himself, took it into the grave with him, destroyed it, and rose up without it, and offers you his life. That's what God has done in Christ Jesus. So please forgive me, because I'm going to use another Lord of the Rings example. But we, we, you know the scene uh, in Lord of the Rings where um, the big fire monster is after them, and they're trying to get out of this cavern, and this big uh, fire monster, Belloc or something, comes after them. And they're right at the cusp of getting out, but this fire monster comes right to them. And um, Gandalf says, you shall not pass. And it's this great scene. And what eventually happens is the wizard goes down with the fire monster. And he goes down, and the other people escape. And he keeps falling down into Sheol with this fire monster. And then he destroys it on a mountain. And from there on, when Gandalf appears again, he appears as Gandalf the White. So clearly Tolkien is trying to show, giving you a picture of what Christ has done. He has taken that thing that is after you, taken it down into the grave and smote it, and then rose up again and offers you his life. That's what God has done in Christ. So Christ has dealt with your sin in every way. Another um, good example I heard was, do you know, if you have a, a snake bite, you can suck out the poison. But once you do that, you're sucking the poison into yourself. That's exactly what Christ did. He, was, he took out the poison from you absorbed it into his body, took it, destroyed it, rose again. Allah couldn't do that. God has done what the law could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. He put it to the grave. Now, why did God do all this? Why did he do all this? Because God's purposes will remain. That's why. Because when he intends to do something, he will see it to completion. And God intended to have a people who will glorify him. And he will have a people who will glorify him. First, what he needs to do is take their sin away so that they can actually stand in his presence. The next thing he does, and he did that through Christ, is give them his spirit 
so that they can actually be enabled to obey. Verse 4. So he condemns sin in the flesh sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's why he saved you, so that you might be a holy people who love, obey, and serve him now and forevermore. Michael Bird, in his commentary on Romans, writes, Paul's gospel is not just about saving souls for heaven, but redeeming and renewing a whole people. Remember, Paul says that the purpose of his apostleship is to bring the Gentiles to the obedience of faith, Romans 1.5. So, you have been freed up to fulfill what the law requires, God's heart. And not individualized precepts of the law. Not, not, okay, so now I don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. What does that mean? No, it's the righteous requirement, the singular of the law, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what God frees you up to do through the Holy Spirit. So remember, again, not individual precept, because Jesus says, the law said you shall not murder. But Jesus tells us that you haven't fulfilled the law because you haven't killed somebody. That's not fulfilling the law. Fulfilling the law ultimately to the, to the heart of that law is you shall not hate your neighbor. Right? So it is through and only through the Holy Spirit that you're enabled to live that kind, that kind of life. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that is exactly what the prophets promised us. That God would light, write his law on our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And that has now come in this new age in Jesus Christ. So the grand purpose of redemption was to create a people who would glorify God. So, three images here. Um, when God created humanity, he created them in his own image. Right, so when kings in the ancient Near East used to conquer a place, they would set up statues of themselves, images of themselves. And when people came and saw, they would know that that king reigns here. He's conquered here. So when God has created humans in his own image, what he has done is he has sent out living representations of, of who he is, so that we might spread his character out into the world forevermore. That was his purpose. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, you know, let your light shine. Why, why let your light shine? So that men might see your good works and glorify God, glorify your Father who is in heaven. The reason you let the light shine is for the glory of God. I, we, God has freed you up so that his name might be great in the heavens, so that he might look down 
and say, have you considered my servant Gary? How faithful and upright he is. Have you considered my servant John? How faithful and upright he is. And the accuser in the council will come and accuse you day and night before the Father. But then the Father will say, but do you see what I've done through my Son and through the Spirit he is being conformed into the image of my Son day after day. Do you see how faithful and upright I have made him? Do you see that how I will be glorified in his life? Do you see that? We want to glorify God on earth and in the heavens so that your life might be a sweet-smelling sacrifice to him. When we talk about ultimates, the glory of God, that is the ultimate. So, and guess what? This lasts forever because God will not destroy his own images. And that is where the good, the, the good news for us comes in, is that we get to participate in this God-glorifying project forevermore in glory with him. So, I want you to understand, you're free from sin's penalty. Your heart is going to condemn you, but God is greater than your heart. Number two, you're free from sin's power. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You are not victim to a past sin. You're not victim to a propensity, a psychological disorder, an emotional problem. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from that. You need to approach God in faith and trust, and he will deliver you. Number three, you have been enabled by God's Spirit to love, serve, and obey him. That is the theological grounding and basis of what follows in the rest of Romans 8. God has done what the law could not do. He took care of your sin, and he's given you the ability to be a God-glorifying individual forevermore. Let's close in a word of prayer.